Welcome to MH Connections. This is the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust Information Evening here in London. We're um, in Gray's Inn, and uh, this is a very grand venue that we're in this evening. Um, I'm here with Hamish McAllister Williams, who is Professor of Affective Disorders at Newcastle University. I'm really looking forward to hearing your talk tonight, Hamish, which is on antidepressants, the myths and the facts. There's been a lot of discussion about antidepressants over the last couple of years, the BBC Panorama, um, the Cipriani network meta-analysis earlier this year, the antidepressant withdrawal review from John Reed and colleagues a few weeks ago. Um, just give us a flavour of what your perspective is on this whole discussion. Okay, so um, I think the most important element of all of this is really addressing the question of whether antidepressants work or not. Um, Unfortunately, most of the data we have is with uh, people over the age of 18. Um, but we have a lot of evidence um, around the effectiveness of antidepressants. And you mentioned the Cipriani meta-analysis earlier on, and that it was an enormous study. Um, it is the largest analysis that's ever been conducted of antidepressants, 21 antidepressants, um, over 500 trials, over 110,000 patients included in those trials. And what those trials showed was that all of the 21 antidepressants were statistically significantly superior to placebo. One of the issues that, though, gets raised about antidepressants by the critical psychiatry lobby that argue that antidepressants are not effective and shouldn't be used is that while they may be statistically superior to dummy tablets, um, they're... Uh, clinical effect or the clinical effect size um, is just irrelevant and is too small. Um, in my talk tonight, I'm going to challenge that with really two pieces of evidence. One is um, an analysis uh, that was conducted by Stefan Leucht a few years ago that compared the effect size of psychotropic drugs compared to the effect size of uh, treatments across the whole of medicine. And they completely and utterly overlap. The effect size of psychotropic drugs used in mental health um, are just the same as the effect size used across medicine, and antidepressants fall within that area. So if we argue that the, the antidepressants are not, uh, don't have a clinically significant effect, we would need to argue that all other drugs uh, don't have a clinically significant effect, and what would we have left? I mean, we'd have virtually nothing left in the whole of medicine. There is another point um, and another uh, strand to my argument, and that is that uh, one of the other issues is what else is one going to use? Um, many people might immediately say, well, talking therapists, psychotherapists, and we know that these are efficacious. Um, I wouldn't dispute that at all. But what I would point to is that they're not a panacea. So to try and illustrate that point, I'm going to show two pieces of data. One is from the STAR-D study, um, looking at first-line treatment with citalopram. It's a relatively naturalistic study. Over 3,000 patients treated with citalopram, and about 36% of patients enter remission, um, pretty much free of symptoms. So you could say it's not brilliant. We could then look at um, psychological treatments, and the most widely used psychological treatments in this country at the moment is, is what's referred to as IAPT, uh, increasing access to psychological therapies. And for the data for 2015-16, um, nearly 1.3 million patients were referred to IAPT. But of those 1.3 million, a third never went for any therapy at all. A third voted with their feet and didn't go. 
And of the 800-odd thousand patients who did go into therapy, only uh, just over 200,000 recovered. Uh, the recovery rate for those who started therapy um, was in the order of 26%. So actually slightly less than the uh, remission rate of citalopram in the um, study study. But I think the, the next question is, what happens to the other 1.1 million patients who were referred to IAPT? If patients are referred to a psychological therapy and they don't respond, what happens? The psychotherapist usually doesn't do anything. You know, they would refer back to the GP or the psychiatrist. What are they going to do? The interesting thing about STAR-D was that it looked at sequential treatment options after uh, for patients who failed to respond to the citalopram. And unfortunately, response and remission rates are lower for second-line treatments, even lower for third-line treatments, and pretty low for fourth-line treatments. However, if you look at the cumulative response, it's actually pretty good. We're talking about remission rates of over 60% if we look at remission across four treatment trials. And that's what's really happening in naturalistic practice. So if we just throw out antidepressants, we throw out all pharmacological treatments, and we are going to throw away the opportunity of getting uh, the vast majority of patients actually into remission if we persevere with various different treatment options. So I think that's important. Do you think antidepressants are overprescribed? Um, quite probably overprescribed, but also underprescribed. I think both things are happening simultaneously. I think that there are patients who are getting antidepressants who don't need them, and I think there are patients who are on long-term antidepressants who don't need to be on long-term antidepressants. But I also see lots of patients who are not on antidepressants who should be. So I think, paradoxically, both over- and under-prescribing is happening at the same time. And do you think the issue of antidepressant withdrawal, which is obviously a big deal for people who, with, with long-term conditions or who've used antidepressants for many, many years and struggle to get off them. Do you think we know enough about that and how to deal with that issue? We certainly don't know everything. Um, we don't know everything about antidepressants full stop. Um, but we do actually have quite a lot of clinical experience of how to manage um, discontinuation from antidepressants. Uh, clinicians have been dealing with this for many decades. Um, indeed, awareness of discontinuation um, was uh, really uh, promoted, talked an awful lot about. Um, it would have been in the 1990s. Uh, prior to that time, I would readily admit that uh, many clinicians were less familiar with the fact that many antidepressants were associated with discontinuation. Um, but I think in the 1990s, there was a tremendous amount of education around discontinuation. And, uh, you know, most doctors um, are aware of discontinuation um, that occurs more so with some antidepressants than others. I guess one of the, the criticisms that's been made of the Cipriani network meta-analysis is the length of those studies. We're looking yes. at eight-week-long studies. So, um, you know, although that's a very robust and I think the biggest meta-analysis in psychiatry, uh, we, we are still relying on relatively limited data there, aren't we? Um, I, I couldn't agree more. We are relying upon short-term data, and we do know that some patients are on antidepressants for many years, and we don't have studies going out over many years. To a certain extent... We never will do because it's, it's, it's nigh on impossible practically to do those studies. Um, you know, researchers retire before they get to the end of the study or patients leave the studies. So for practical reasons, we are always going to be somewhat limited. But we do have studies with antidepressants going out to two and three years. Um, and while 
there aren't lots of those, and while there aren't vast numbers of patients in those studies, we do have those uh, those data. Those data confirm um, an effect of antidepressants reducing risk of relapse, and that effect size is way bigger than the acute antidepressant effect of, of the drugs. Um, we also have safety data from those studies, uh, and we also have safety data from uh, the, the general clinical use of the drugs over many years and the systems we have for reporting problems with drugs in the long term when they're being used in naturalistic practice. Mm. So it, it, it would be wrong to say we know nothing about long-term use of drugs, albeit it would be good to know more. And I guess what we've seen over the last few years is a real reported increase in the um, incidence and prevalence of mental illness in younger people. Yes. Um, and I guess also an increase in the prescription of antidepressants to younger yes. people. Um, what do we know about how well antidepressants work in, in young people? Um, well, unfortunately, nowhere near as much as we need to. Um, there is a, um, a, a real shortage of studies in under-18s. Um, we do have some data suggesting that um, at least fluoxetine works in, in under-18s. The data with regard to some of the other antidepressants is more equivocal. And I think that we need to understand a lot more about why that might be the case. Why might it be different in somebody who's under 18 compared to somebody who is 18 and over? These drugs appear to work. We do know that um, suicidal ideation, for example, may be increased more in uh, younger adults. So 25 years old and, and younger, suicidal ideation may be increased in, in those individuals um, when first starting on antidepressants, um, more so than in older adults. So it is something clinically we need to be very aware of. We need to be monitoring our patients very closely. But we should be doing that anyway. This is not a reason not to use a drug which can be potentially life-saving. And you know, depression is unfortunately a terminal illness for a minority of, minority of patients. We must never lose sight of this. In all of these arguments about which treatment to use and you know whether antidepressants are evil or, or good, um, they're neither, I think, but they are an important tool to be able to help us treat a very serious condition. So whether it's antidepressants or talking treatments or other interventions that we're talking about here to help people, why is this focused support for people with depression so key? Well, depression wrecks people's lives. It wrecks the lives of their family. It is a massive impact on society because of the overall costs, not just to the health service, but to um, the rest of society. Uh, it's the leading cause of uh, incapacity benefits, for example. Um, but even more so, uh, depression increases mortality rates. We might think, obviously, of suicide, but what we also know is that depression increases the risk of developing serious physical health problems like coronary heart disease, like diabetes. It also increases mortality in individuals who have a coexisting physical health problem, such as cancer or lung disease. So what we know is that the life expectancy of people who suffer from depression is lower than people who don't. That is very serious. The problem with knowing whether effective treatments can actually make a difference to that is that most studies are too short, as we've already talked about. There is one study that's recently been published that uh, was a registry study over five years looking at a particular type of treatment, 
vagus nerve stimulation. But the important thing about this study is that it compared patients with treatment as usual over five years with people who had vagus nerve stimulation plus treatment as usual over five years. The patients who had the VNS plus treatment as usual did better. They had a higher response remission rate. But the really critical data was that mortality rates were over halved in the group who had vagus nerve stimulation. Now, is that something particular to vagus nerve stimulation? I'm not sure. It may be much more to simply effectively treating depression. And anything that we do to actually effectively treat depression hopefully leads to a reduction in mortality and increase in life expectancy. And surely we should all be working for that. Thanks a lot for talking to me. You're welcome.